Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Patreon-exclusive back half episode of No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm very well, David. I'm very well. Uh, I just had a little bit of a surprise, though. It just, I mean, it's not something I didn't know, and it's not really connected with anything exactly. But I was just looking at the areas that are not covered by the Nobel Prizes, Biology, oceanography, mathematics. I did know the Fields Medal is for mathematics and astronomy. I thought that was very interesting. Um, But, uh, you know, we think of that uh, as being a kind of gold standard of intellectual achievement and cultural significance. And yet many categories uh, are not uh, included, um, which maybe isn't surprising given that... uh, Alfred Nobel was famous for really inventing dynamite, which, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. 26,000 feet per second detonation I, velocity. I did it's, not know that until I read um, Human Smoke by Nicholson Baker. Yeah, I, I love that. I've mentioned, yeah. yeah, I might have mentioned that on the podcast before, but the book is told in short anecdotes, and it's a kind of fictionalized history of World War II. And Baker's goal in this book is to show everybody just how anti-Semitic and awful everybody on all sides of the World War II conflict was and how bad war is. He's a pacifist. Um, and uh, yeah, it opens with uh, with Nobel as a character. But I don't know if you can hear it in the background there, folks, but I'm having a pretty decent thunderstorm outside which i'm always excited about i feel like our episodes are real bangers when we have some inclement weather outside well i've had one here so yeah we seem to to be magnets for it i think that's great i think that's a cool cool vibe to have you know yeah yeah no idea that it was going to come into as is the case with um oklahoma meteorology they try their best I tell you what, actually, as a side note, if you ever uh, want to start to distrust science and the media, piggybacking off of our last conversation that we had, uh, be in Oklahoma uh, during the summertime and watch the weather reports and watch as they valiantly struggle to predict what exactly is going to happen (laughs) and watch them be wrong at least 50% of the time, you know, and God bless them. I really, I love meteorologists. I think they're just really cool people, especially the tornado chasers who devote their lives to being absolute psychopaths and trying to drive towards tornadoes. I just think that that's such cool cowboy behavior. Oh, but, I, you know, I love it too. Yeah. 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 But they're not right. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're not, they're not as right as sometimes, um, people like me who watch the weather, uh, a lot would like them to be, but Hey, Berenstein Bears, man. I can just stick my head outside and see what's going on. Exactly right. Yeah. You know, the, the, when in doubt, stick your head out the window. That's always uh, yep. a great uh, form of, of reasoning, you know. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, a posteriori, you know. That's the way to go. Right. Correct. That's go. right. So for this episode, we, uh, we started off the, the first half of the show talking about conspiracy theories in general, how they might be used as a tool in a wider cognitive, intellectual, epistemological toolkit. And for this here, part two, 
I'm interested, Chris. Uh, where do you want to take this bad boy? Okay, well, I do have some uh, an interesting direction, I, and it, it's it's a little bit of a labyrinth, but I I have hope that uh, our listeners will bear with me, and I know that you will have some very very interesting ideas. But uh, just a little reminder that the the continuing David experiment uh, is on. Uh, mm-hmm. David has five words uh, from which he has chosen two, two words to integrate somehow into the conversation. And uh, the challenge for listeners is to try to pick out which of those two words. So we're learning a little bit more about David's thought processes, his strategizing. He's getting sneakier and sneakier. His... Uh, his performance in part one, the free-to-air one, was absolutely superb. <laughs> I was very proud. But we're also going to ratchet things up. Yes, we are. Uh, one of the keys to um, my... Uh, the method that I use with students is to force upon them parallel processing in uh, quote-unquote real time. Or spiral processing, if you like to think of it. So while we're conducting the conversation to follow, David has another assignment, which he is only hearing about now. Okay, this will be a new segment of the show. So every time there'll be a new challenge, the experiment will continue. Uh, (laughs) But he's going to have to think about a response And we'll come forward with that at the end of the episode. If he wants to scribble notes secretly throughout, he can. But we're going to be listening for him carrying on and and being part of the conversation while this other challenge runs on its own strange, twisted track. So here is the question. We live in an era that loves post-apocalypse stories and it's appropriate to think maybe in a playful way about a post-apocalyptic environment so david is going to come back to us at the end of the show with a brief elevator pitch for a science fiction drama type of show Mm -hmm. in which he and rios and young gus are out wandering the new wilderness of Oklahoma, post-apocalypse, and they come upon some cultists, a new kind of cult. And David is going to have to think of the focus of the cult. Uh, I earlier mentioned a dream in which I had encountered in a strange... Uh, dilapidated boarding house in some weird town in Indianapolis, a group of people involved in a kind of worship of the movie The Poseidon Adventure. So David is going to have to think about something like this, but he's going to need to give us a little context about the cult, how the family finds them, how they conclude what the nature of the cult is. Uh, David, you have a a couple of seconds here to ask any further questions for clarification. Do you feel confident? I feel pretty confident. I think you laid it out well. Um, just going to take a moment here to think, maybe five seconds, see if if anything comes to me here. Um,
No, no. Okay. Okay, cool. I don't have it yet, which I think is the point of the experiment. Absolutely. But but I also do not have any questions, so we may proceed. Okay. All right, then. Um, In the last uh, part two episode, uh, David mentioned a story that had gotten a headline uh, about a character named River Dave. And I mentioned at the time that that actually triggered an awareness for me of a kind of insignificant thought process, but in in a sense, very, very emblematic of of how my mind at least works. And my proposition for this episode is to look a little bit more deeply at how all our personal associative patterns work. And the more understanding we have of them, the less mysterious we will be to ourselves. That's good, I think. Uh, But I think we'll get a handle on how we interact with larger cultural lowercase c patterns and the bigger idea of culture with a capital C, which we refer to as the ghost radio signal. And along the way, I think we'll deepen and enrich the concept of how conspiracies actually work, their, their inner mechanics sometimes down to a very uh, micro level, Uh, because again, part of the proposition is that things work up from micro levels to a a bigger mosaic picture. But in doing that, I think we also might get an an angle on what is positive about conspiracy. We said in part one that, you know, the reminder that to conspire means to breathe together, that maybe there's something really good at at least structurally valuable about conspiracy type of thinking because it's so deeply embedded in the idea of culture. It's it's embedded in our social structures. It seems to be pretty fundamental to human nature and it's reaching a kind of fever pitch now. So I think it behooves us to try to to understand it a little bit better. So that's the direction we're, we're going in. Okay, David, mentioned River Dave, some sort of obscure character that I had seen flipping through my news headlines. And I really didn't take much notice of it. I I kind of assumed a kind of interesting, eccentric, homeless type of character who did in fact have a home, but someone who was kind of on the outskirts of, of society proper. Meanwhile, at the time, I thought that I was reviewing in my mind the idea of celebrity presenters in advertising, that strategy, uh, for whatever reason. I, I used to run an advertising agency. That was an idea that, that we often tossed backwards and forwards. There are pros to celebrity presenters. They have authority. Uh, they sometimes have some real uh, uh, topical prestige. Of course, they, that can be limited Uh, They can also be difficult to work with. But anyway, that's what I thought I was thinking about. And my mind jumped to way back in time, one of the first celebrity presenters in ads that I can ever remember as a kid. And I knew he was uh, a nutritional expert, or that was how he was being positioned. And therefore, I thought, oh, it must be must have been for a healthy cereal. 
And I rummaged through my brain to try to think, well, what's a healthy cereal? And, and one back then. <laughs> and, you know, that's kind of hard. You know, if you're thinking back, I, I'm talking about my, my childhood, you know, when, yeah. you know, everything's, uh, they're magically delicious as in Lucky right. Charms. You know what I'm saying? Here. So, yeah, yeah. Sugar, sugar, sugar. So I was, I couldn't get my handle on that. And, but I knew there it was, there was something happening. I was trying to remember who it was and there was another story. And then I just relaxed my mind and I heard his voice. Reminds me of the taste of wild hickory nuts. And I thought, oh, and I thought, Yule Gibbons. And that was, in fact, the guy I was thinking of. And I encourage listeners to, if you don't, I, I, I absolutely forgive you for anyone in my age who doesn't remember Yule Gibbons. It's probably better you don't. Uh, you need that mental space. But he was a famous, at the time, for natural food foresting, foraging, harvesting, just finding berries, uh, there were a lot of jokes about him eating roadkill. That was very unfortunate. But he was supposedly this natural food guy before all of that blew up into, you know, the cliche that it's become. But the other aspect of the story was that he actually died at 69, which, I don't know, that doesn't seem that old to me. No, and, uh, no. It's not a good look when a nutritional expert, you know, dies at 69. <laughs> right. So that was the link back to River Dave. In fact, I hadn't really been thinking of, of Yule Gibbons. I've been thinking of a very general notion of, of advertising and celebrity. Earlier, Dave and I did a series on celebrities and culture, and I was thinking about some aspects of that that we didn't uh, get around to discussing and some listeners have contacted with me with more information. So there was some background, there was a template, there was a matrix or a substrate. But that little moment of the River Dave reminder that I had even noticed that headline, I would have completely had forgotten that would have slipped through consciousness. And I think that this is how our associative patterns that we build consciousness out of really come to pass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in an earlier episode, I talked about the an algorithm of consciousness. I'd now like to refine that and link this also back to our part one discussion and, and put forward the proposition of consciousness as conspiracy as conspiracy within our mind, within our associative patterns. That if we think of our of associative patterns built up from things as trivial as River Dave, trivial to me, it's obviously not trivial to River Dave, but mm -hmm. how our associative patterns interconnect in ways that, to me, it, it reminds me very much of Mark Lombardi's uh, visualizations of, of networks, uh, I mean, he's working on a, a social level way up. I'm talking about a very micro level down in our own personal psychologies and cognition that we may not even be aware of. And I suspect, and I'm afraid, that we're too often not aware of. 
So my thinking is if we can become more aware, and one of the ways to do that is, is stimulating conversation, oftentimes coming in at angles we don't even know about. I mean, David had no idea that River Day was going to trigger some sort of, of connection for me, but it did. It brought to mind why the ghost of Yule Gibbons with his wild hickory nuts had come to mind. And I think a lot of our thinking is based on that level. It's a murky machine language sort of level. But if we can become more conscious of it, I think we can get our hands on some more sophisticated machinery within us. So what do you think about that as a starting point, David? I think that's a great starting point. And it makes me think of the... um, what does he call himself? Oh, right. The synchromystic thinker, Christopher Knowles, who uh-huh. runs a great blog called The Secret Sun. And I love reading this guy's stuff because he's um, he's actually a really nice guy, as far as I know. I've never met him personally, but he seems to be relatively cordial in his interactions with people. He uh, His claim to fame was that he wrote several books in the 90s about the X-Files and superheroes and the sort of uh, mystical symbolism of superheroes. But he is somebody who has a brain that is always working in this murky way that you that you just explained very well. And reading his posts is more fun than reading any fiction or any article that I could I could possibly imagine. So Christopher Knowles has a kind of eschatology, cosmology that all centers around Elizabeth Frazier of the Cocteau Twins. He (laughs) believes that Elizabeth Frazier is a kind of modern day prophet, uh, weapon of the apocalypse um, uh, figurehead, right? Almost a Christ-like figurehead. And so he sees references to Cocteau twin songs in headlines and news items and, you know, ad campaigns for Gucci. And so he basically will scour the internet for ads and stories and things like that and create these these wonderful synchro mystically linked posts about um and everything from transhumanism to occult rituals to, you know, sort of... And sometimes he, he comes upon some some really interesting connections. For example, do you remember the guy, I believe this was last year, but the guy who blew himself up in front of uh, AT&T headquarters? He was in a car. Nobody got hurt, but he blew himself up in his car. I can't remember the guy's name now. Um, I remember the incident. I certainly don't remember his name, though. Yeah. Well, Chris had this great article about that guy and how he basically, the timing of his explosion was somehow in an astrological hour, I believe, that related to Jupiter and how blowing himself up in front of the AT&T headquarters, uh, AT&T's old logo actually, I believe, used to be Maybe it was Atlas or something like that, but sort of this this figure carrying a globe. And if I could remember the way that he tied it all together, uh, this story would be a lot more fun. But basically, he links the time the guy blew himself up 
the the street name that he blew himself up on, the former AT&T ads that he kind of all compiled, and then some headlines that had you know certain number patterns in there. And I, I swear to you, when you read these things, they make total sense in the moment. And, you, and then, you, of course, you step back and you're like, wait a minute, does that, does any of that make sense? You know? Um, but he finds some spooky ones too, right? Uh, there was a singer named Sophie, I believe her name was. She was a trans uh, hyper pop artist who threw herself off of a um, off of a building, or maybe she fell off of a building in while she was, you know, kind of under the influence of drugs. And you know, and he went to Google Street View and found that there is a there's a statue in front of the building that she threw herself off of uh you know of a falling angel right with the angel on its head basically so anyway it's it's really cool a little spooky and when he gets into his elizabeth fraser rants uh pretty completely unhinged right like you could just tell this guy was really high one day and elizabeth Fra- he was listening to a cocteau <laughs> twins album and elizabeth fraser came down and you know basically um revealed things to him but He's a person who I trust and would go to before literally anybody in the mainstream media or news. And why is that, right? Well, I think that the reason for that is that, you know, the mainstream media has this myopia and this kind of, how do I put this? A kind of diabolical amnesia about how they about how they report things, right? Not, see, so if you have Chris and you have him uh, synchromystically connecting everything into this murky stew, and you have the news in in which has no sense of history past the event that's happening right now, I think uh, you know I'd much rather have somebody who's making these connections, both to see things that I otherwise would not see. And also to kind of get my brain into that mode. I like thinking synchromistically. I like, you know, interpreting things that I see as signs from the universe, which I truly, truly believe that they are. And I think you do too. So, yeah. I absolutely do. Well, you know, just as as demonstrative (laughs) evidence, if not proof, uh, I mean, I, I like uh, Jean Cocteau's work. I do. I think he's, you know, but I haven't really had anything to do with it for quite some time. But just this morning, I did come across uh, a quote of his, which I thought was very, very funny. He said that Victor Hugo's chief form of madness is in believing that he's Victor Hugo. <laughs> Oh wow! What a great quote. I thought, awesome. yeah, and I thought, you know, and and I mean, Hugo, you kind of come across from time to time, but I have not really come across Jean Cocteau for for a while. Um, so it is you read odd. That this morning? That you yes, I did. Oh my god! See what so, I mean, folks? This <laughs> it's peculiar. There's some, there's some magic going on around here. Yeah, peculiar or magic or both. It's. Uh, well, magic should be peculiar as all as as well as uh, I mean, it is something that is happening all the time. It's just a question of mm-hmm. our tuning into it. You know, I think tuning in is is one of our 
working metaphors. And I think that that's, that's the thing that's weird. That's peculiar is, is that when we do tune in and because it makes us think, well, how often are we maybe not tuned in? And if we were more tuned in, uh, might we, you know, see and understand and feel more engaged with, with so much more of the world? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think and there's it, no question. Yeah. And that Cocteau quote makes me think, you know, that Victor Hugo's biggest mistake is thinking that he's Victor Hugo, <laughs> you know, holding, holding a Victor, you know, a Victor Hugo, but like, um, uh, La Miserable, my French is, is, is terrible. Right. Uh, but you know, holding that book in your, in your hands, um, you might think that that's that book, but it's actually not that book, right? That book only exists in the reading of it, in the moment-to-moment absorption of it, in the in the interactions to it. So, in a way, uh, broadly speaking, we can say that nouns don't exist, but but verbs do, right? Like interactions, um, you know, thing. We use that term in part one, imminence, right? There, there's nothing but but imminence. No, if if a tree falls in the woods, does anybody hear it, or does it make a sound? Rather, um, well, I mean, yeah, maybe to the to the other trees, right? But I think I think that's kind of a a way of thinking about that about that question. The, the what I would say is that I'm not even sure that there's a tree falling in the woods, right? That's that's the that's the problem with that question to begin with. There's only a tree insofar as I'm perceiving the tree, or a squirrel, or a chipmunk, or something is is seeing that that tree. I get really excited about this kind of stuff and I start to ramble. It, it well, happens. it's interesting because this is uh, our, our practical tip that we'll get to uh, at the end of the show speaks to these issues very, very definitely and is, is truly practical. Um, it's a way of getting our hands uh, you know, more fully on this idea. There's no question. But let's look a little bit more at how, not a train of thought, because I, I, I think we need to think more in terms of something spiral and something more yes, like yeah. a labyrinth or a mandala or a jigsaw or a kaleidoscope, something more dynamic. But how the thought process evolved, once the, the Yule Gibbons thing got sort of settled in my mind and I started thinking about, well, what if... if my thought processes can be viewed as a conspiracy, as an internal kind of conspiracy that makes my cognition possible. Uh, I, I jumped to thinking about Marvin Minsky, the robotics pioneer and AI pioneer, a very interesting book uh, of, of his called Society of Mind, which is a, a, a real landmark in, in decentralized intelligence. It's an alternative model to a kind of Richard Dawkins uh, framework. And yet Minsky, of course, came from that world and was was heavily credentialed. And then I've realized, ah, um, as, as brilliant as Marvin Minsky was, he's definitely, he's dead now, he's definitely one of the people implicated in the Jeffrey Epstein web Um, which was a a very, I mean, I I think it shows something about the the potency and strangeness of that interlaced network of notoriousness because, I mean, Minsky, you know, was not the kind of, of, of individual you would think would be involved in that. So instantly I 
thinking about decentralized forms of, of you know, intelligence, associative patterns, uh, consciousness as conspiracy, wham, one of the big conspiracies mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. our time. I mean, are oh, that's you... great. Are you fascinated by the Epstein thing? I mean, I just... Yeah, yeah, I really am. I think that as far as webs of connections goes, I mean, I would love to get a peek at Epstein's little black book. Uh, just And, you know, we mentioned it, but the the habit of digging up photos of who's hanging out with Epstein at his different parties. You got Bill Gates, Steven Pinker. I mean, all of these scientists and thinkers that have risen to prominence in, in our pop culture, in our, in, in that kind of arena seem to have spent time with Epstein because the rumor has it, and I'm not really sure this is a rumor anymore, but that Epstein was interested in, uh, seeding the earth with his uh, sperm, basically, <laughs> that yeah, he wanted to no, create a super I, race of people, you know? I, I think that's right. And I, I think this ties in with another... Uh, we, we have touched on this at some point um, earlier in the series, but you, you brought up a, 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 the, the idea of this clandestine... Um, well, they're not clandestine in the sense that we know who they are. They're they're super powerful people, but the the networks and and the uh, practices behind the 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 you know the the dark doors are are predicated on uh, well pedophilia as yep. a blackmail means. Do, do you remember you put forward that idea? I think that's just worth touching base on a little bit because. To me, it mm-hmm. seemed mm-hmm. completely credible that that would yeah. be the crime that would, I mean, I don't think any other crime would really have the blackmail leverage with with no. super powerful people. Um, and it's one of the great, it, it is the great taboo of our mm-hmm. time. Um, so that makes perfect sense. Um, do you remember when that came up? That was because you brought that up. I, I, I think it's... Interesting. I brought yeah. that up. Yeah. Yeah. I brought that up in the context of the book Program to Kill by David McGowan, who was the former head of disinfo. That's uh, right. Yes. And the first part of the book is really tough to get through. But what McGowan's doing in the first third of the book is detailing all of the um, uh, high profile uh, pedophile cases that uh, got swept under the rug. So he's very meticulous about who the perpetrators are alleged to be, always people in, in high positions of power. Uh, he goes through the some of the evidence about, uh, you know, there are people who ended up, you know, dying and, you know, police finding uh, dungeons with recording equipment in their basement and, you know, buried children's corpses. It gets, it gets really ugly. Um, so he basically builds a case at first that these rich and powerful people are entirely capable of getting away with the systematic, continual, ritualized abuse of children. And, um, from there he, he makes a, a, a claim that everyone from, you know, Charles Manson to Ed Gain, uh, was part of a sort of MK Ultra experiment to create serial killers. So his thesis at the end is that is that serial killers are essentially created through institutionalized CIA funded uh, uh, rape of 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 children, like continual continual uh, child rape until they become these kind of uh, dead eyed uh, uh, serial killers. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's a dark well, book. Well, you know, the thing about that is that to me, that almost seems a little too coherent. You know, yeah, I, I find I that very yeah, compelling. Um, it, it, it It's the kind of thing that I'll, would strike a lot of people as being just, you know, as I said, too coherent to... Uh, to deal with, but in in a, in a way, <laughs> um, that's kind of where you know you mentioned the word spooky earlier, and I think that's when we have that spooky feeling when things start to fall a little bit too completely into place. Then we right. have some doubts about it. But on the other hand, you think, well, maybe maybe the, it is spooky. Maybe it's spooky because mm, it mm-hmm. you know it is spooky. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, to full disclosure to the Patreon, um, to the Patreon crowd, I find his arguments really convincing. You know, I mean, I, I don't really think that there is um, anything lost by accepting his premise. I think that, um, you know, it definitely did make me uh, sort of view the world, especially with a new child through a, a slightly more suspicious lens. Um, but I do, I also think that it just makes sense. You know, monsters exist. I think we have, it would take weeks and weeks and weeks to go through every case of, you know, serial killers and child rapists who exist, who are real. And so it's not a huge leap from there to suggest that people with money can get away with it over and over and over again. And then from there, I mean, if you look at even just what we have, what they didn't shred from MKUltra, it's really not that far of a leap to assume that these absolute sociopaths would have learned about the uh, usefulness of this tactic and then decided to just, you know, spend that hard-earned taxpayer money on, uh, on creating super killers. Well, look, you know, it, it makes me think of a friend of mine. I haven't seen him in a while, but you'd really enjoy him because he, he says things like, you ever wonder why fried eggplant tastes the same as fried aubergine? Because they're the same damn thing! <laughs> you know, and he's, you know, he almost, he looks at things and goes, well, it, it's only spooky and surprising if you just were ignoring all the other signs. Yeah, exactly. That's that, that, Yeah, it, right. With so many conspiracy theories, when people say, I don't believe that bullshit. It's like, have you been paying attention to, you know, just waving my hand at the world in general? It's like, it's like have you been asleep in class? I mean, these are not nice people and, and bad things happen all the time. Of course, that doesn't mean that that's... Oh, necessarily the way to live your life, you know, and anxiety and fear about these, you know, probabilist, you know, the, the probability of these happening, these things happening being very low. But I, I just, I don't, I don't see why, you know, I had a friend, uh, I have a friend, we didn't, we didn't split up over this or anything, but I have a friend who I've probably mentioned on the show before, who is, uh, you know, he's a, um, He's a kind of a desk jockey, right? In New York, he's a civil servant. Uh, he works for the for the city of New York, and he uh, he and I got really got into it about the Epstein thing because he said what you don't understand is like that prison is terrible. It's completely conceivable that the camera would have gone out for a period of time, and that Epstein could have hung himself or hanged himself rather in that period of time. And I said, yeah, but I mean, number one, it's a little convenient that that happened, and number two. 
what makes you think they wouldn't take him out? If you have that many powerful people in your little black book, and he was going down, he wasn't getting off like he did the first time. I mean, somebody, somewhere, pulled some strings. It's just, it's it's almost harder for me to believe that somebody would not have done that. It would be like saying eggplant's different than aubergine. <laughs> that is such a Twin Peaks line, by the way. That feels like something that Lynch would Lynch would put in, like, uh, you know, in Frank Booth's mouth, basically. Yeah, I mean, I, I just... Uh, I'll, I'll try to save up some more of this guy's comments, because he's just... He, he has this really just cracked way of looking at things that is, uh, I, I just find um, just wonderfully uh, inspiring. Uh, but to go back to sort of this uh, working on developing a, a model for this associative sort of pattern. So I hit the Marvin Minsky Society of Mind thing and then went into the Epstein Vortex. Notice this is following a little bit of a model of how we might Google on things and the rabbit holes mm-hmm. that we go down. But this is how the conspiratorial sort of mind, you know, works. And in in, in the sense, the internet is, is a really good physical, concrete uh, externalization metaphor for this. Then mm-hmm. I got to uh, swarm intelligence, which was a huge idea and remains a huge idea, obviously, in entomology and, and biology at large. But it became a very big cybernetics idea, a very big information science. And it, then it got appropriated by the HR people in the corporate world of how we, you know, no, no more bosses. It's an extension of the open floor plan and on and on and on all of that nonsense but it did connect me back to lewis thomas who i think is such a beautiful writer a great scientist a neurologist you know a real md and a very fine uh linguistic scholar um but when he writes about uh insects he says you know a few ants or termites get together and then the thinking starts, which I think is right. just a beautiful line. And for people who've been following uh, our part two segments, that is a beautiful expression performance of our pirate radio idea. The sense that we do not really uh, function fully as individuals. We simply right. don't by definition. We really do need each other. We need conversation. And that's a beautiful word. Look, break that down. Con, you know, conversation. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. When two or more ants or termites get together, the thinking starts. Does that? Is it just me, or does that remind anyone of a famous line? When two or more are gathered in my name, there am I. Mm. I mean, that mm. is a core <laughs> that's one to me one of the most important things that the character of jesus christ it's uh you know alleged to have said in today's terms i think that's just a beautiful idea um and in between there is the the great humanist scientist eo wilson who <clears throat> i mean his contributions to uh, biology and the life sciences at large is just amazing. For anyone who's looking for an example of what a true career in the world 
a career of just immense achievement looks like. I suggest looking at his biography. And he's also just a wonderful, interesting person. But he was the founder of social biology, which has come and gone in terms of, of fashionability. But his ideas are very, very important. And his sense of this biological need for connection in a very psychic sort of sense, in the, in the, in the way that, that Lewis Thomas was saying, a few ants or termites get together and then the thinking starts. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important concept that, that we're always drawing on some larger idea of culture, capital C, the ghost radio signal, even when we're alone. And we really need the sociality of the pirate radio approach. This experience right now, this conversation we're having, this reach out to community, we physically need that yeah, to function. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just as important, I think, as our physical needs for things like, uh, you know, water. I'd probably put it on about the same level as, as water because I think you go brain dead in about the amount of time that you would go actual dead if you didn't have water. It is interesting because I'm thinking about how much time I spend by myself um, and how many times I, I actually call people on the phone to talk to them while I'm hanging out with Gus. Um, because when I am by myself, you know, there is is a certain value to boredom. I think that's where all of the different toys and, and parts and ideas can uh, begin to connect and you can start to sort of create new ideas out of that. But I'm much more functional in my day-to-day life when I'm chatting back and forth with another person. I think I grew up with, you know, mostly with my mother and my, you know, my grandmother and my aunt, they started a cleaning business together. And so I basically grew up with, you know, three chatty women who would sit around a table smoking cigarettes and talking and gossiping and going over the day and they would just reiterate these, you know, these different talking points over and over and over again and they would they would bounce ideas off of each other. And that to me has always been the single most fun thing that you can do is uh, you know, if I was drinking to drink a beer smoke cigarettes and just chat with somebody really cool there's in my mind there's nothing there's nothing better than that because that's where you know interacting with people who think differently from you is so important which is why what's going on now with social media and this idea that you have to stamp out and metaphorically kill anybody who has a thought that deviates from you know, your precious little house of cards is creating the the soul sickness that we're seeing these days. And it really is a soul sickness because you have to communicate with people and be friendly with people who are fundamentally different than you. You have to be surprised and have the ability to to kind of interact with them or um or you go stagnant, right? I think I think way too many people are um they're just going on Facebook and they're seeing the same 
opinions about the same thing that everybody became an expert in this morning repeated ad nauseum. And uh, there's there's no dynamism, you know. Uh, two or more are not gathered. It's the illusion of of people gathering in a place when really what you're doing is just reading bathroom graffiti all day long and <laughs> cre- creating a, a you know a way to view the world out of out of all that graffiti. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the word boredom. Uh... Alan Watts is someone I, I I still have a lot of time for. He's another yeah, one too. of those figures of, uh, you know, a really strong mind and a and a great education coming from England into California. You know, in the late fifties, sixties, mm-hmm. and great voice it, too. Oh, fabulous! And he really uh, he a lot of people resented his. Uh, sort of cultural appropriation of, of Eastern spiritual traditions. But I think he was a great uh, trailblazer in terms of, of raising interest and awareness. And he knew a lot. I mean, he really knew what he was talking about. He knew a lot about the Christian tradition and the Eastern philosophical tradition, certainly. Um, but one of his really simple remarks is that the, the defining uh, nature of the modern malaise is... is a fear of work and a fear of boredom. Mm -hmm. And I think that is so true. You know, people who just can't sit still, they can't bear their own thoughts for long. I mean, that isn't that really why we have the, the addiction to entertainment that we do, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, constantly needing stimulus. And then we turn around and go, well, I don't have time for that, and I'm 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 struggling to uh, to grill, as you said. Yeah. A lot of <laughs> yeah, listeners. Right. I mean, I, I've been thinking about that because that there were many people who found that very humorous, and I, I think we all do. But you, and you were referring to Americans primarily. I think Americans have the mm-hmm. problem of of they're struggling to grill. But yep. you know, Jesus Christ, can you imagine a, a place? a social matrix, a time in history, any way you want to package context that has been more favorable <laughs> for grilling yep. than now. I mean... Yep. yep, yep, Yeah, two things come to mind. Number one, I will never forget a story that I read in the New York Times years and years and years ago, back when the, uh, the conflict in uh, Afghanistan also extended to the conflict in Iraq. And it was the story of a lawyer in uh, Baghdad who went to work every day. He had to walk through essentially a live fire zone to get to work. And he put on his suit and he made the hike every day. And, you know, both sides knew who he was, but there was some pretty hairy shit that he had to get through to get to work. And if that guy can get to work, you can grill almost, almost certainly. And then on the boredom note, I'm listening to an audiobook by a woman named Janet Lansbury, about uh, raising children, and one thing that she mentions in there is that when your when your baby is fussy or you know uh, kind of wiggly or whatever, our tendency is to go over and start to entertain the baby, shake a rattle in front of its face, pick the baby up, uh, make goo goo gaga noises at him or her. Uh, but she says, you know, wait a minute, like how do you how do you know 
that the baby's not having fun. You have to think of it from the perspective of a baby. It just came into this world, and it might just be staring at that ball and reveling in the ability that it has now to flex its vocal cords and kick its feet, right? So there's this idea that you know that that we have that we that we never want to be bored. We want to be looking at our smartphone or have some kind of flashing light, some basically a repurposed slot machine in front of our face 24/7, right? Um, and then we unfortunately project that onto a baby, and this really opened my mind. So today, you know, I let Gus just kind of hang out, and I was always around, but I wasn't in his face the way I've been um, probably too frequently. And you know what? He just kind of hung out. He kind of, you know, he sucked his fingers and he looked at a ball that I put in front of him. But man, for a going on four months old, that ball must be trippy, man. That's got to just be a wild thing to look at for the first time. You know, <laughs> a blue and orange ball. So I think that that principle though holds true for us. I mean, you know, babies need that time to learn how to do things themselves, to allow thoughts to process and to just to use a no countryism to just vibe, you know, to just sink into the vibes of being alive. And so so do we all, even us grown-ups. Well, this is the real, you know, the real problem of 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 getting back to to presence you know, to immediacy and breaking through the barriers of the perceptual mechanisms, but then the processing via language into conceptual levels and layers that we so quickly lose track of. I think that's the real problem. We, we suddenly lose track of them and they become the nature of our consciousness, which we accept. And we accept that level of existence we accept being on that level when in fact there are obviously multiple levels to live you know to live on i think that we occasionally touch base with that infant level again mm-hmm. uh, we've talked about you know the, the the definitions of uh of genius or, or certainly creativity many many of the greats have said it's about childhood regained at will i mean that's baudelaire said that heraclitus uh, I think even Nietzsche had something to say on that line. It, it's that's one mode. Certainly, the indigenous people mode is another way of seeing things of being very mm-hmm. physically grounded, and and just just simply being alive in the moment without all the frames and filters that. Unfortunately, I mean, they reveal some interesting things and they're very handy. They're like mathematical models and algorithms. They're tremendously handy. But the problem is we forget we're using them. And and to go back to Cogteau's line is that, you know, Victor Hugo's big problem was that he thought yeah. he was Victor Hugo. Um, right. I mean, I think you can pick that up and look, you know, at it from different angles and it just gets... Not only funnier, but it gets truer and and more yeah. insightful the more you turn it around. That's uh, yeah, and so it's almost like you know what does a life actually look like? Well, I would put forth that a good life looks like you know sitting in silence for a certain period of time during the day, 
Of course, it involves exercise and nutrition and sunlight and getting out into nature and finding out the names of cool new bugs. That's all a part of it. And then when it's time for social interaction to go into that process with a robust spirit and to, you know, interact with various, like many and varied people and, you know, and really engage with them, code switch at will and um, spend, nice as, 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 spend as little time as possible uh, on the phone, really. I mean, just, and if you are uh, on the phone and you're looking at, at things, you know, you can kind of dip your toe in, take the temperature, get a little bit of poison. Remember, most vaccines are... Uh, That's know, the concept. Most yep. vaccines are a little bit of the poison uh, so that you don't get sick. So you do want to kind of dip in there. You don't want to be totally... Uh, uninoculated against this kind of stuff but largely um it's social interaction it's it's looking a person at a person's face or hearing their voice or both preferably and then uh you know and then shifting that to you know spending your time uh you know in deep contemplation and 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 production you know work is another big big part of that you know spend Ursula K. Le Guin had a great, you know, writing routine for four hours every day. And she, you know, famously wrote out her, her kind of day routine as a mother and, a, and an author. And of course, you know, she, she did uh, write most of her work once her children were, were grown. But, you know, they were probably, you know, tooling around the house as kids are wont to do. And, um, you know, she wrote for four hours every day. Um in a kind of nice broken up sequence there. And I think that's a, that's a respectable day of work, especially if you got other stuff going on. Well, and it's certainly a counter to, you know, the difficulty in grilling, isn't it? I mean, there are many, many really cool authors who have managed uh, to, to juggle, you know, a great career with, uh, with family. I mean, I just, that made me think of J.G. Ballard, whose writing career really took off when his uh, beloved wife died, you know, a real tragedy. And he had three kids to deal with, which, I mean, I don't, I don't think there are many widow, widowers. Uh, I think he was like in his early, I think he was about your age, early 30s, and had really one, you know, kind of traction getting book. And he, he just dug in and said, look, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to be a writer and a father. And well, no, the drowned world, the drowned world, which was more of a conventional. Uh, it has just some of his obsessions. Now, the atrocity, he, he, that, that's a later when he really lets roll. Um, he, he, he did uh, start off writing some, some more conventional uh, science fiction, I think you'd say. Um, but he always intermingles his interest in well, Freudian psychoanalysis, surrealism, drugs, uh, and certainly that kind of ominous, uh, well, new anthropology, you know, really. He was onto that in, in many ways, how, how technology influences uh, anthropology and, and, and psychology, you know, High Rise and Concrete Island. Those books would be good examples of that. And then the atrocity exhibition, I think, is just is beautiful prose poetry, you know, and, and news collage, you know. Would you would you like to hear my proposal? 
I would. Oh, are we ready? <laughs> oh, is it, are we ready for yeah. elevator? I was okay. Okay, good. Yeah, you're right. We're, right. we're coming up. But I was going to give you another minute. But yes, we're ready to go. We want to know about the cult that you and family discover in the new wilderness yes. of post-apocalypse yes. Oklahoma. Yes. Okay. So, um, a, a, a pandemic has destroyed society as we know it. The economy has collapsed. And what's left of the government has decided that uh, sort of these vaccines for this mysterious ailment, uh, I don't know, we'll just, we'll call it um, the sickness, right? The vaccines for this <laughs> like ail- ailment, ailment have become mandatory. So me, Rios, and Gus uh, are very, like, I am very much against getting this particular vaccine because... The, it's very clear that there is some kind of microchip in the vaccine. We're going full on just like what if these people's fears were absolutely true, right? So we set off into the wilderness. Rios is very against all of this. She's fine with taking the vaccine, but I convince her that this is what's best for us because I've proven to her that this, you know, this particular vaccine seems to have strange effects in children, right? So we come upon this cult in the woods that is in the process of building a pyramid. They're constructing a pyramid, right? And the surroundings to the cult uh, compound are full, like they're surrounded by these dead uh, exotic bats, right? That they've kind of strung up as, as decor. And what this cult's whole idea is, is that disease is actually the great update that the universe is giving to us and that disease is in fact sacred. So I had this image in my head of this really cool, if it was a film, right, of all of these people sitting, meditating with these uh, great tubes that connect the fronts of their faces together, two at a time, right? So two people sitting lotus with like a, with almost like a, um, uh, some kind of piece of, like a, like a, pvc pipe or or a dryer tube or something like that that allows them to inhale each other's air now in order to become a part of this cult you have to participate in the rituals but they say to my family you know we'll allow you to stay for a week and see how we do things and see if you want to stay now this is a safe zone, right? This will completely make us safe from the government entities because what's happened is that people have become completely paralyzed with fear of the idea of disease and these are the lepers of the time. You can't you can't go in there without getting sick. It's absolutely infested with every disease you could possibly think of. But they're they're slowly but surely sort of inoculating themselves and and becoming maybe a bit superhuman, I'm not sure. Anyway, over the course of our week's stay there, there would be a kind of reversal, and I haven't worked this part out yet, but I would find something very disturbing going on in the pyramid, and I would then begin to try to convince Rios that we must leave the compound immediately. But she's actually, she's seeing things that make her think, you know what, actually, they have a really great point there. Maybe she has a sequence in the, you know, the face-to-face tube mask where she, you know, has a bit of hypoxia and gets a little high and has some sort of vision about how we need to stay there. And I think that this story 
would act as a very timely uh, allegory and metaphor for a few things. Number one, you know, the idea of trying to keep your child as safe as, as possible and realizing the impossibility of it in this world, but also as a great little um, metaphor for how parents kind of go back and forth about their different ideas about how to properly raise a child, right? Oh, um, yeah. And then, and then have Gus sort of in the middle, maybe he's seven or eight or whatever, and you know, have some really choice, great lines from him um, about how he should be able to kind of like make his own decision because he he just you know he just wants to play with friends. So that's my that's my pitch. My working title uh, would be something like the new normal, but I'd work on something better. Um, but that there you have it. Okay. Well, look, I I, I think it's great. I, I think it's I love the tube masks. And how mm-hmm. that is a is a very it's subtle but very concrete uh, mm-hmm. dramatization of of breathing together of of conspiracy. Mm-hmm. I would right. be pitching maybe for something like the breathers in the title, something about the breathing. Breath- oh, I like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I like but, that. The breather. The breather is actually is a really cool title. <laughs> but the pyramid and the baths. No, I think well done. I think we we can say you've you've delivered on the promise there, and the the experiments will continue. You will get another assignment. You've done so well, so we'll carry Woo. that on as a new tradition. Excellent. Love it. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun to both pay pay attention to our conversation, and it's like you said, it's. It's so bizarre. I encourage people to try this at home. It really is running in the background. And then, you know, while you would be talking at various points of our conversation, you know, not even related, as far as I can tell, to what you were saying, but it would just pop into my head, you know, just like, oh, yeah, add in add in the bats. I'll scribble that down. Add in the pyramid. Scribble that down. Very fun. Very And useful, I think. It's like different tracks of a recording. We've got... In, we've got perhaps infinite potential you know mm-hmm. really we we don't have any idea if we give ourselves these little challenges things open up and our our ability to to really manage associative patterns on other scales and in other rates of speed just just increases and it's a beautiful thing plus it's just plain fun you know, it is fun. It, uh, it's, it's good. I might, I might actually write that. <laughs> I might actually, I'm on a real writing kick lately. So I might, I might just go ahead and write that one. Yeah. Bang that out. Bang that out. Well, I'm pleased. I'm pleased. And so now we're ready for our, our, uh, practical tip of, of the week. And, um, Again, I hope this this is something that that will be really helpful in a very simple way. Uh, we're not trying to do anything, you know, astonishing with these, but but something that that, that is workable. Um, I rewatched the uh, the famous Kurosawa movie Rashomon the other day, and um, I think that people who know that film know that it's often put forward as uh, the different points of view of the same event. And that's true and not true about it. That was kind of what I remembered. But it's not, in fact, an allegory or an analysis of how three eyewitnesses' accounts of uh, 
an event in real time are different from a perceptual point of view. That's not fair to, to what the what the film's about. It's about the difference in stories and versions that get concocted or the ways that uh, the characters depict an event fundamentally after the fact and often for rhetorical or personal advantage of some kind. And I think that's a very important thing to distinguish between. There's a difference between eyewitness testimony being having conflict if there if different people see something and then a difference of course there's going to be differences in the stories the language processing the other level of information after the fact and today we live in a time when I, when there's a lot of doubt about eyewitness testimony i mean people who follow crime stories and crime fiction but crime news know that that's kind of uh gone out the window we we want you know, harder evidence. Well, I, I was thinking about this uh, when something happened to me. I was in my car and I spilled uh, a bag of change into the little compartment box between the seats. And I couldn't see the coins because of where the box was. So I had to use my hand, my right hand, just to grab and gather those coins. I want you to try that as an exercise. Your your particular uh, compartment in your car may be too filled with stuff. Mine would have been, except I got a new car. Um, but get a container that is about that size. And the important thing is to have it at an angle so you can't look down into it comfortably. You really have to use just your hand, just the sense of touch, just your muscular memory and connection. Dump a fair bit of change in there, just the change. There could be a few other things in there if you like, but the goal is to return those coins or to put those coins into a small plastic bag. See how many grabs it takes you to do that. You have to get all of the coins out, but just revisiting that sense of touch, that muscular capability of, of managing to get a hold of these coins without any access to vision. It's a very, very powerful little technique. The point is, I think we have suspicions about our perceptions, particularly our visual perceptions and therefore interpretations of events, because we're not using our other senses very fully at all. I do a lot of blindfold work with my students. It's a key part of the textbook idea. But use your hands to really get in touch with touch. And I think this is vital coming out of the COVID period. Um, I mentioned in part one about my realization about just not shaking hands very much over the last 18 months. I'm sure our listeners know exactly what I'm talking about. Touch is a vital, integrated way of connecting with immediacy and presence, which is what we're really losing. And we're, we lose it in so many obvious ways through, through language, through metaphor, through conceptualization. All these powerful intellectual tools we have, which are great, but there's something about 
knowing if you've got that last dime or nickel in the bag. You know, did you really clean out the box? Really? If your life depended on it, you know, think about how many goes it takes you to gather up those coins. As with all of these practical tips, they are really, really down to earth. But I guarantee if you follow through with them, there's something uh, to learn. So that's my tip for this week. And, uh, and I did have an odd little dream. John Goodman. I think we know who I'm talking about. Dan in the Roseanne show, the big Lebowski, you know, he was he's been around. He's a he's a great actor and he's he's a big man. Well, I found myself in a library. We've often talked about libraries. David brought up the beautiful William James line about humans being like cats and dogs in a library. Well, I found my way down through the stacks, and there is John Goodman looking bigger than life, larger than life, we say celebrities are. And what is he doing? Well, to my astonishment, he's providing voiceover. He is reading aloud Bertrand Russell, the British philosopher. And I just thought, well, this is very odd. I don't know if people realize Bertrand Russell, although he was a very severe, uh, extremely clear logical thinker, he was one of the people we associate with logic and logical paradoxes and a mathematically driven philosophy. But he was also, uh, like Graham Greene, a tremendous womanizer. He just couldn't keep it in his pants. Um, And he was a very... It's, it's just such a strange... He had a very harsh upbringing. That was, that was one of his uh, explanations for it. But D.H. Lawrence was fascinated by him because he just seemed so anal retentive and kind of rigid in his thinking and his philosophy. And so un-D.H. Lawrence. But they had one thing in common. <laughs> they were both complete sex fiends. But anyway, John Goodman is reading Bertrand Russell very straightforwardly into a mic and there's a small production crew around him but then for whatever reason he's been going so well with a beautiful trained voice approach everything's been straightforward but he starts to laugh and he gets into a laughing fit something like my father could get into and he just couldn't he just can't stop He just cannot stop. And everybody is laughing and it begins to build. But then I notice that there's some tension in his face. He's having some kind of neurological problem. And then it becomes more of a mechanical, physical problem. And he begins retching in just an absolutely disgusting manner. So the transition from this smooth professional reading of Bertrand Russell to this god-awful, hideous retching, and he brings up a fur ball of shredded cheddar cheese. Can you imagine how disgusting that is? Just think about that for a moment. Something like a fur ball. It's a good-sized lump 
but the lump is actually made not of hair, but of shredded artificial cheddar cheese. And it's just so revolting. And he barfs it up into his hands. And at that moment, he has this sort of chest splitting thing, like in the first movie, Alien. And his whole upper body rips open. And everyone just is so revolted and shocked because out of John Goodman's chest comes this opossum-like creature that is fetal, but it really looks like an alien astronaut. It's full grown, even though it doesn't look fully formed. And it looks at me and it looks around at the film crew and John Goodman is almost dead from the laughter and barfing up the, the cheese ball. And it says, not laughing enough in life means that you are certainly laughing at the wrong things. And that was it for me. I had to wake up. <laughs> That's great. And you know what's interesting about that? So today for lunch, I had a, a turkey and cheese sandwich. And I my air conditioner is out. So I have an air conditioner that I borrowed from my in-law's that requires this kind of dryer tube to go out the window and a tube, you know, a tube. Yeah. It yeah, links. Yep. And, and so, you know, this air conditioner is blowing and it's powerful. It's got this icy blast. Right. And for whatever reason, I'm walking through my kitchen and somehow, you know, I have a dog and I promise my house is clean, but in an act of complete, you know, serendipity or whatever, a, a piece of dog hair, just flies down my throat and I begin to cough on this dog. I can feel almost like it's a bundle of hair and I'm actually got my fingers in my throat and I'm trying to pull it out. Well, my fingers went a little bit too deep. So I rushed over to the toilet and just finished the job and actually vomited up turkey and cheese into oh my the toilet God. <laughs> today. Oh so, my God. How weird is that? That how is, that? that is spooky, weird, cool. That it is, was a cheese. It was a cheese hairball, basically. Oh my god! Well, you know, <laughs> we we keep saying, you know, everything connects. We cannot escape the web. We cannot escape the ghost radio signal. We are part of the whole deal. Oh man! Well, well, people would say, you know, that that's just a, a coincidence. But I would encourage anyone once you get into the spooky world of synchronicities. To try to try to just calculate in your mind uh, how it might happen that on the same day that Chris tells me about his dream in which John Goodman hacks up a a cheese hairball, I in fact also have thrown up a cheese hairball. It's too it's too perfect, right? You know, it's why do you think fried eggplant tastes like fried aubergine? <laughs> You know, it's, yes, it's a little bit too much of a coincidence. <laughs> it's it's yeah. a synchronicity. It's just plain weird. Yep. Uh -huh. All, right. All right. That'll do it for us. All right. Take Everybody care, everyone. Take care.
Keep your keep your eyes out for the weird. And remember what the the, the great physicist John Wheeler said: If you haven't seen something weird today, it hasn't been much of a day. <laughs>